Hey podcast, today's episode may be a little bit different than what we've done in the past, but it's certainly an important topic for many of you. We know that a lot of you suffered from flooding in 2019. On top of that, had an extremely wet year. This discussion goes specifically with some of the top minds that were dealing with the flooding at the time, some of the impacts that they saw, and things that you can do moving forward if we were to experience this in 2020. Now I'll knock on wood here hoping that that doesn't happen but we think it's extremely important to have this information available to you because what we would hate to see is for all of these lessons learned from 2019 to be kicked to the wayside so be sure to listen into this if you're someone that you think might be affected by flooding in 2020 if there's some information that you want to learn uh there's four or five different topics within the podcast so feel free to to jump around to some that might be relevant to you but lots of great information This was a webinar that was recorded on the AgriSafe Network podcast. Be sure to check out some of their learning labs and some of the information that they have there. They have a lot going on for uh, farmers and a lot going on in the world of egg safety and health. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hello, welcome to the AgriSafe network webinar on winter farm flood health threats, risk factors during recovery. We appreciate you joining us today. We know it's very important because there's a lot of devastation with flooding across the Midwest. And we feel this is an important time to come together and make sure we address those high risk health areas. We're fortunate because sponsoring this event is also the Center for Agricultural Safety and Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So the Ag Center has been very helpful for us in terms of pushing this information out and also identifying speakers for today's presentation. We have a lot of material to cover, so we'll try to get right to the the content of the presentation. Because this was made available as a public training, we're gonna have people join us today from all different backgrounds, and that's okay. The purpose is to provide a general oversight on those health risks that may be seen on that farm when it floods, which we know can be very different when a farm floods because of the nature of that industry. So I'm gonna move forward here and explain to you a little bit about how our webinars work if this is your first time with us. If you're not familiar with AgriSafe, we've been around since 2003, and our job is to protect the people who feed the world. We do a lot of distance education through webinars, and so, We've been, had experience in the area of flood recovery as well, uh, because we know it's, an, it's something that's been affecting, obviously, parts of the country for a long time now, and we have to be responsive. So several years ago, we hosted our first webinar on flood recovery and brought in experts, and we continue to do that type of work. But if you're not familiar with us, we offer a lot of trainings, not just in areas of natural disaster, but also uh, as it relates to the health and well-being of the farmer. At the end of the day, we want to see that farmers and ranchers can live a long life, productive life, and not suffer from illnesses related to their occupation. So you can see a lot of the work we do is based on those occupational exposures like respiratory, hearing loss, ergonomics, you name it. And certainly um, with the threats of floods, there's a lot of health risks that are of concern to us. That's why we're involved in this issue. So please, if this is your first uh, time with AgriSafe, please make sure to follow our work. You can follow it through social media. Being a member is very important as well. You get access to over 80 trainings on demand that you can view in your own time. So we hope to hear from you um, if there are trainings that have interest to you that you can't find. 
Again, today's webinar is specifically focused on the winter farm flood health threats. Um, it will be recorded, so that means that you can share this link with others, and you'll be able to find that on our website. To navigate today's training is pretty easy. If you have a question, you're going to go ahead and ask your question in that chat box. And we're going to be taking most of the questions at the end. Um, but as you think about that question, feel free to add that to the chat box. Also, keep in mind, if you're having any technical issues, put that in the chat box as well. I'll be moderating the session and happy to help you. I'm going to go ahead and um, before I switch to our first presenter, I'm just going to go right to our website so that you can be familiar with what's available through AgriSafe as it relates specifically to the flood issues. In your material section on this training, you'll find several different documents. One of them is going to be this farm flood health threat fact sheet. Um, we've had that developed for several years, but we did modify, modify it to be specific to winter recovery, which we know is different to recover from a winter flood than it does from a summer flood, like from a hurricane. Um, you'll see the areas on this um, fact sheet. There's six content areas in the back side of the fact sheet. We talk about human and animal threats like zoonosis, well water, chemicals, mold, stress, and cold stress. These are six main areas that we're concerned with, but we know there's so much more when it comes to flood recovery for a farm. Things like electrical shocks, drowning, falls, structural hazards. We'll be touching upon that a little bit today, but I just want to make sure you're aware that this fact sheet is for you to use, for you to disseminate, and hopefully you'll find it helpful. If you wanted to know where we got this fact sheet from, again, um, it's on our website, and we have an entire page dedicated to all the resources we'll be talking about today. So it's called Safe and Healthy Recovery After Flooding. Please visit that site. Also, that's where you'll find information about today's recording. If you want to go back and listen to the recording or share it with others, you'll find it on this page. I'm going to go ahead and move over right now to our presenter. I'm very fortunate to have with us um, Linda Emanuel, who is a, a nurse with AgriSafe. She's been with us for about um, 16 months, and she is uh, located in Nebraska, and because of what's happening in Nebraska with the flooding, we felt it was appropriate for her to share some insight on that community response. So Linda, I'm going to go ahead and make you the, um, I'm going to unmute your mic and, whoops, sorry about that. You'll have to go ahead and unmute your mic. It looks like you're muted. And I'm going to go back to the slides and I'm going to show the slides that you're interested in talking about. So Linda, you should be uh, ready to go when you're ready. I am ready. Thank you, Natalie. And hello, everyone. I'd like to say that we are talking to you from the shores of our farm, which is normally surrounded by dry farm cropland. And now we have lakes, multiple lakes surrounding our farm. Um, we are farmers here in East Central Nebraska. Um, we raise corn, soybeans, seed soybeans and seed corn, along with helping our sons with their cow-calf herd operation. We are a multiple generational farm. And our farms are actually located on top of a bluff that overlooks the Platte River Valley. On the east side of our state, we have two rivers, the Platte River and the Elkhorn River. And those two rivers um, are what has caused the great amount of flooding and devastation to our area. These two rivers then flow into the Missouri River. 
And so um, a week ago, it was just a little over a week ago, that emergency management systems notified our community and our area that the potential for flooding was there. Um, this bomb cyclone storm, as they called it, was coming in and to be prepared. Um, my community that we, um, we have our school and all of our services in has a population of 1,200 folks, so we are relatively small. We are an agricultural-driven community as well as an agricultural-driven state. Um, so on the 12th of March is when the emergency management notified us that things could happen. Um, the Platte River flows right along our city and there were ice jams there. We have frozen soil right now because of winter conditions. And just a week prior to the 12th, we were hit with a snowstorm in which we had two to three feet of snow on the ground. On the 13th, they called school off and the sandbagging efforts began, um, incorporating community folks as well as students from our high school and grade school. The 14th is when the rain started. We had torrential rains that I have not seen in my lifetime. There was water over the roads and um, things were moving along fairly quickly. Um, again, school was called off in, indefinitely. And on the 15th is when a breach began on one of the lakes surrounding North Bend. And that's what flooded our community. There was a mandatory evacuation and the three highways that lead into our community were closed because they were impassable. So all folks had to migrate north to a very small little village to find safety and shelter. We alone took in um, 10 family members and friends and in many places along the highway leading north out of our town absorbed folks that needed shelter. So it's, it's been a journey, it's been an adventure. Um, when it came to disaster recovery and assistance, our um, state leaders, pulled upon key leaders within our community who have had little to no um, experience in disaster. So I'm very excited that we're putting together a webinar to help other folks who may go through this. Um, we had a command center in which there was city council, acting mayor, water and sewage folks, law enforcement and volunteer firefighters. We had volunteer coordination, a donation depot we called it, in which our high school um, gymnasium is housing the amazingly, amazingly large volumes of donations coming from other communities in our state as well as our country. Um, we have public health departments stepped in and administered tetanus shots and Red Cross is now here um, offering mental health aid. Um, I've learned a lot through this journey. I've learned how strong our community is and how much heart we have to help each other. There are farmers and ranchers that are leaving their own farms that are destroyed and going in to help the folks in our community to clean up and to get back to some kind of a normalcy of life. The issues I've seen, um, the physical threats, we've had human and animal fecal material issues. Um, tetanus spores, of course, are an issue, fungal histoplasmosis, um, what I've actually visualized was uh, soiled carpets in folks' homes because sewer systems backed up. They were full and overflowing. Um, heavy sludge on sidewalks uh, in and within homes. I was part of a canvas team that went door to door that tried to determine needs and to let the folks know to where get to get assistance. Um, slips, trips, and falls became an issue because we have overnight freezing, and so um, that sludge gets fairly slick, and, and folks have been slipping and falling. Um, chemicals, I've seen gas containers that were tipped over. Um, we have local cooperatives, farm cooperatives near our community that have a lot of your insecticides and herbicides as well as anhydrous needed that we use to treat and to care for our crops and um, some of those containers were floating along and landed on folks' yards. Um, cold stress was a big issue. 
we are still in winter here. Actually, the first day of spring was yesterday, and it was nice to see the sun shining. Um, but the cold stress was an issue. Folks um, put boots on, but some of those boots weren't adequate enough to protect their feet and their appendages from being cold. And also, uh, fatigue was shedding. And we have um, a volunteer fire department, and those folks have been monitoring the, le the levees and the dikes for over a week now and not sleeping and, and actually abandoning their own homes and families to take care of our community. Mental health stress. I have been seeing that come in waves. Initially, it was anguish and anxiety and shock and just trying to digest what was going on and unable to sleep. Um, in the days following, I saw anger, hopelessness, confusion. So because we're a small community, we don't have that TV coverage or that radio coverage that we need to know what was going on and to get actual factual information. So our newspaper editor stepped up and was providing Facebook live posts as well as Twitter updates as to when the city, what was going on with the floodwaters and when it would be safe to come in and then where to get assistance. Now that we're into day seven, I'm seeing extreme fatigue, um, tears, um, people are crying unexpectedly, anxiety, they're short-tempered and, and just looking for normalcy. How do we get back to what we consider be perceived as a normal life. What I saw immediate needs were was PPE and the education for it. We did have a public forum meeting um, the second day the folks were allowed in town where they invited the whole community to come in to um, get the needed education and to know what assistance was there. And so um, I was invited to that panel and I uh, talked about um, the potential threats as well as what to do about it and simple tasks. And, and you have to keep in mind, we don't have the Home Depots and those large box stores that would have that PPE available. So it's whatever we could get our hands on. Um, I talked about the N95 masks. Um, I talked about appropriate boots, um, the long sleeve shirts, goggles, and the protective cover. That picture that Natalie has up right now is actually <laughs> my family, and the gentleman in yellow had sewage-laden carpets in his basement. So um, our guys went in and ripped that up and, and pulled it out. And so they're, they're pretty much covered appropriately, except I see three of them need their goggles on. But you have to remember, it's, it's hard to get a hold of that equipment. Um, when our donation depot started setting up cleaning station, we put the PP kits, PE, PPE kits into their cleaning buckets. So they had it. A lot of folks don't think about it. They don't think it's necessary. Um, so it's actually, I, what I've seen is that we need to educate and then put these products in their hands. Um, it, it's kind of funny. I went into the high school as a core volunteer coordinator and then I've become, now I've become a public health consultant. So very thankful that I have a, a great network around me. The folks at UNMC's Center of Ag Safety and Health have been amazingly supportive in helping me to wade through the issues as well as my own team at AgriSafe. Um, in looking forward, um, what we're doing today is continued um, volunteer assistance as far as helping folks get things out of their home. We are an aging community, so helping those older people remove the things that they need to to get them out on the curbs. And then actually farmers have stepped in with their large equipment to move that debris over to a collection site and to get it out of the city. So those are the things that we're dealing with now. You know, step by step, we're getting better. Um, very thankful that um, I've been surrounded by good people to help navigate this whole long journey. Thank you, Linda, for that, that great overview and, and um, 
really Linda's role, she's a public health nurse, works for AgriSafe, but it, the timing of it was perfect because she's a great resource for her community. We're very interested in trying to assist other public health nurses to be able to do what Linda's able to do. So if you are a health professional and you need access to get some good information, um, basic steps, please reach out to us. We want to make it easy for you to provide that, that technical assistance. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next presenter. Um, and uh, this presenter is Dr. Chad Roy. He's the Director of Infectious Disease Air Biology at the, and also he's the Director of the Biodefense Research Program at Tulane National Primate Research Center. Um, he's a professor of the microbiology and immunology at the Tulane School of Medicine, so many hats. But what's unique about Dr. Chad Roy's background is that he started his uh, work in his thesis PhD dissertation working for the University of Iowa, studying the endotoxin that's released um, when uh, soybeans are being harvested. So he has an appreciation of the risks that farmers face every day and, of course, the mold uh, aspects, too. So this was very timely to have him involved. So, um, Dr. Roy, let me go ahead and find you here on the – make you the presenter. Well, you already are the presenter. Good. I think so, I am the presenter, and yeah, thank you, you Natalie. Ready. And, You're, ready. You're ready to go. And I, I, I trust you can hear me okay, so I'll uh, thank you for that introduction. And uh, we're going to spend the next couple of minutes going a little bit from the general to the specific uh, in terms of the microbiological consequences of flooding. And, and I talked similarly about this when we had uh, devastating flooding down in in, um, in Louisiana a couple of years ago. And some of the tenants that I spoke of uh, at that time uh, hold true in this uh, very un unfortunate catastrophe that's taken place in, uh, in Nebraska and Iowa at this, at this time. Um, and uh, if anything, to give a better appreciation for what is actually taking place and why we see uh, such uh, terrible contamination uh, of, uh, of, of both bacteria as well as, as fungi and their products uh, in these types of contexts. So, okay. So the numerous sources for microbial contamination, especially in the agricultural environment, uh, are numerous. The, the number one is, 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 is contact with organic uh, substrates, um, soil. You know, soil con con is comprised of uh, a third to half of uh, microbial content uh, in a tablespoon of soil. So if you can imagine uh, when uh, floodwaters come into contact with that for a long period of time, and that, that illustration on this particular slide that, that, that's up here, what to remember is that the compaction that we normally see in soil is loosened, uh, because of the uh, of, of the water uh, intrusion into that for prolonged periods of time, and the net effect of that is a release of uh, mainly non-pathogenic but uh, microbial uh, organisms. Nonetheless, uh, <clears throat> when uh, absorption takes place in, uh, in in that particular scenario, and um, and so you have uh, saturated conditions, and in that that, that panel C there and that illustration shows that you have a effective release of that into the environment. And because of all the water activity, uh, which is essential for microbial growth, uh, uh, is available at that time, 
you can uh, you can see algal blooms and and and, and molds and also bacterial uh, growth in places that normally uh, are, are not affected by that. And I should mention as well that other organic uh, uh, components, not only soil, but but things like uh, hay bales, especially if they are uh, protected, they can still be vulnerable uh, to this if you're you're coating them uh, or, or wrapping them. Uh, if there's any break in that and, and, and water can get into to those areas, as well as in, in husbandry operations, which can release not only non-pathogenic organisms, but also potentially pathogenic and zoonotic uh, uh, disease agents that are sometimes harbored, um, uh, you know, in, in, in animals uh, on the farm. So I mentioned the basis for microbial growth is the source, which we have numerous sources on 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 the farm and, and agricultural operations, more so than urban environments. Uh, and so it stands in stark contrast to what you would see in a, a, a flooding situation in an urban environment. Um, and, and 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 agricultural environment is is uh, somewhat more at risk for uh, for this and for the, the consequences thereof, as well as the water activity. So all microorganisms, as a kind of a truism, and we're surrounded by them at all times, require water in, in an available form to grow. And uh, the availability of water is measured by that water activity that, that, that you see. And in, in these situations, closed areas, uh, husbandry operations, as well as in the uh, the ambient environment, um, there's water everywhere in a flood, and uh, so it it's provided essentially that that nutrient to grow uh, to uh, to uh, sporulate or to uh, grow into blooms that uh, that can cause problems. So you have kind of a perfect scenario, unfortunately, for microbial growth. Now. Because this is taking place in a uh, in a cooler environment, um, that 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 growth is tempered. But if you remember, a lot of these microorganisms are being delivered to areas that they normally don't come into contact with, in uh, say in buildings, uh, ceilings and walls of buildings, and, and and they can stay there. And so, well after the floodwaters have receded, they're still microbial uh, growth that can take place in these areas that uh, accordingly should not uh, come into contact with and that can be that can be a real problem especially for remediation if you think about it when there it's not readily apparent that it has been delivered uh, to that area um, especially when a flood is ongoing uh, so it can be a, a hazard that's almost subtle and, and, and hidden until a point where remediation takes place as well. So it's it's omnipresent in uh, in these types of scenarios. Uh, I had mentioned that that you know the the vast majority of the uh, uh, kind of the microbiology surrounding floods is non-pathogenic, meaning that they are um, uh, planktonic. And they uh, <laughs> and they are uh, they're around us at all times, not causing disease, thankfully. And there's only a very small uh, percentage 
of bacteria or fungi that can cause human disease and and, and luckily we're, we're shielded from them at, at most times uh, the one of the major um, uh, hazards associated with exposure to non-infectious microbial growth which is the vast majority of the exposures that would be going you know ongoing in a, in a flood situation or in the the, the residual of a, a flooding situation is the exposure products uh, one of which is, is volatile organic uh, compounds. So VOCs that are the same types of VOCs that are produced by some chemicals with low vapor pressures, uh, except they're produced by this, uh, this biological source. And the VOCs are that, that terrible noxious smell that one may get, the sickly sweet smell that one may get when you have mold contamination, for instance, in a home. Uh, and uh, you know, this can cause incredible discomfort. There's a, a l very low olfactory uh, threshold for these VOCs because of the nature of, of, of how they're com composed. And, um, and as a result, it can cause discomfort. It can ultimately irritate nervous system and just be a real pain uh, going forward. And it's unfamiliar. And that's one of the things in an active flood or in a in, uh, in, in the consequences of a flood that can be uh, a real head scratcher on where the smell is coming from. Uh, and uh, more times than none, it can be from microbial uh, source, uh, which uh, uh, you know, a lot of us are, uh, are not familiar with um, in, a, in a farming operation, or not as familiar as say the smell of, of, the, of methane or, 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 or from manure, uh, say from a husbandry operation, which those are more familiar smells uh, that you you put up with uh, in that uh, that environment. Another thing that is very important to keep in mind uh, in in terms of, of flooding is that rather than these three components, uh, the generation, the transport, and exposure process taking place in distinct phases of one uh, being at risk for exposure, say, to an, an, an environmental contaminant such as microbial growth, is that in a flood, they all happen at the same time. And uh, you're, you can have active growth, so dispersion and growth of, of, uh, of microorganisms. The transport is there. It's the flood and the flood waters that it's transported it to. Uh, a, a you know a unfamiliar source, and then the exposure that's taking place at the same time. So there's very few scenarios where you can have the generation, the transport, and the exposure all together. And I guess the, the net effect of that is that uh, interventions like PPE have to be omnipresent uh, in that situation, rather than preparing uh, to use PPE in the event that you may come into contact with a, uh, a hazardous component in the in the work environment. And so it, it, it may sound kind of a nebulous idea, but it's a very important one when you're considering when to use uh, personal protective equipment, like in, in, in this case when, when an N95 is donned uh, to uh, avoid uh, uh, exposure to particulate matter. Uh, 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 so using it at all times uh, in these uh, environments is, is, is very, very important uh, when assessing the hazard. So 
the other thing that is uh, to keep in mind is that the contamination uh, from the water from flooding is, is truly a witch's brew and no contact, um, avoiding all contact at all times, no matter what the visually the water looks like, uh, is so uh, terribly important uh, through barrier protection uh, and or other or personal protective equipment that can protect you, like some of the things that, that Linda just mentioned, um, from not only the biological contaminants, which I kind of focused on the last several slides, but also the chemical contaminants. So things like petroleum products and uh, distillates that, that, that can have a, a pathway uh, based on their vapor pressure. So if those get tipped and the density, so they have the, the propensity to float on floodwaters, for instance. Um, agricultural and industrial chemicals um, that are, you know, can be toxic at, at very low levels. And because we are really upended in terms of our exposures, uh, and that this could be a, com a continuous or repeated exposure to these chemicals, even though they may have some form of dilution in, in floodwaters, there's a repeated exposure that's taking place or has a potential to take place there, mixed with uh, the biological contamination of this, this biota, so this, this microbial uh, source contribution from the soil uh, that has been subsequently liberated from the soil, uh, from the floodwaters, and is now in solution, as well as things like, you know, carcasses and release from carcasses of um, things that are normally otherwise non-pathogenic because they're uh, in the animals. But if you can think of things like, you know, things like E. coli, even, that are normally in the intestinal tract of of an animal that may be liberated uh, when the animal dies from, from drowning, um, or other subclinical zoonotics uh, that could be liberated as well and carried by these floodwaters. So you have this, this combination uh, that you're at risk of uh, exposure to. Uh, finally, and I, I want to just mention a, 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 the about uh, wellhead protection and most water sources in, in rural areas, um, uh, including the farm, are uh, from wells. And um, the, the wellhead protection, the way that wellheads are designed and that sanitary seal that we have on our wellheads uh, can be breached by the outward pressure of floodwaters trying to get in. Subsequently, um, contaminating your groundwater source, and which can be a, a massive problem uh, for uh, for potable water sources for not only residential but also husbandry operations, and can adversely affect husbandry operations in these um, in these times. And and you know, so for providing potable water for husbandry can be uh, uh, very challenging. Um, if uh, if you have a well that that's contaminated in this way, the, I guess the and, and the next speaker is going to talk more about the specifics of this. But if that loss of the integrity of the sanitary seal on those wellhead uh, happens, uh, it can lead to uh, fouling and, and contamination not only from some of the biological agents that I talked about, but also some of these chemical agents that may have been liberated into those floodwaters as well, which is a real mess uh, to uh, to not only uh, just not 
use, but also recover in some sort of remediation on uh, on reusing that well, which uh, which is a you know a whole a whole nother talk uh, in that regard. So finally, you know, and I guess kind of the take home in, in terms of the the microbiology surrounding a flooding event is that it's very very difficult, if near impossible, to measure you know the exposure assessment uh, in in these types of scenarios because everything is so uh, uh, such of magnitude in terms of of contamination as well as uh, the potential exposure to that contamination. So to understand what personal protective equipment is needed and retire, uh, required in this type of situation, especially because the generation, transport, and exposure are taking place all at once, is a, a, a very difficult thing uh, to, to, uh, to do. And so uh, it has to be approached in a, a much different way than other hazards on the farm that you know we can we can assess properly and say yeah you're using this you're using that uh, or this is recommended for use uh, in this particular you know going into a husbandry confinement for instance you know what you're going to wear uh, for instance uh, so <clears throat> barrier protection and avoidance are the best practices barrier protection in the forms of uh, just not coming into contact or avoiding all contact with flood water. So it's kind of a difficult thing to do when you're surrounded by it. But um, uh, and, uh, and and protecting yourself as best you can with the, the required uh, 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 PPE that you can get your hands on, both in an at you know at the time of flooding and when you're going through an event, which is still happening at this point as well as, and it cannot be stressed enough, in the residual, in the, the remediation process, whatever that may be, uh, actively right after a flood or, uh, or, or days later, uh, that protection is absolutely critical uh, in, in all uh, of those scenarios in that regard. Thank you, Dr. Roy, for that overview. And I know there's a lot of lot of information there. Um, so you did a great job of, of, uh, of summarizing that. We're going to move on to the next presenter. And um, uh, we're fortunate to have with us Dr. Bruce Dvorak, who is um, a professor of civil engineering and biological systems um, with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. So thank you for joining us. We All of our presenters were asked um, on Monday that today, so I appreciate coming to coming to the uh, presentation and being available. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you. Thank you, Natalie. And Chad gave a great setup for my talk. I want to talk a little bit about well water safety. I'm showing here an extension page the University of Nebraska has uh, related to this topic. I'm going to, in my presentation, summarize some of what's. Let me get this up. Some summarize some of what's on that page and kind of talk about the different resources that we have at the University of Nebraska. And here we go. So we're gonna talk about well water safety after flooding. And I wanna start kind of continuing where Chad left off, just talking about private well systems. Basically, we've got the well, and hopefully there's, as Chad mentioned, a sanitary seal 
to minimize any risk of any sort of water from flooding or inundation getting into a well. Fortunately, here in Nebraska, we have a number of public water supplies that had their wells actually inundated, but their sanitary seal was strong enough that it basically did not allow any water, any contamination from flooding to go down through the kind of grout next to the well where they had dug the well out to contaminate the well. A few other just basic kind of factors I want or things I want to mention. Obviously, there's a submersible pump, piping, there's electrical power going to the well, and in many cases for domestic wells, there's a bladder system for storage. I want to briefly think about before flooding, what can be done to minimize the risk of contamination and to kind of improve the safety? One is just to disconnect the power supply. Two, if there is a well vent, many older systems have screened vents, to plug that with a watertight plug or to have that extended like many municipalities do to a much higher elevation where it won't be inundated by the flood, that'll reduce the risk of any water getting through. Also, if there is kind of an older well where there may be pathways for water to enter, covering it with heavy duty plastic, securing it using waterproof uh, tape may be very helpful. And I know in some cases, uh, both municipalities and some individuals with domestic wells may use sandbags or water inflated flood barriers to protect a domestic well or an, a municipal well. As far as the most vulnerable wells that might be at greatest risk of becoming contaminated from floodwaters or surface water runoff, one is if there's a well that there is a well pit, in other words, a location that water may gather in above the well, that's going to be at risk. If there are any older dug wells, those obviously don't have a sanitary seal, they're very easily contaminated. Wells that lack what we would call a grout seal in the annular space, that's just kind of putting in, it may be like a bentonite clay on the outer side of the casing to kind of secure the space where they dug the well hole and put the casing down to make it so water can't go down between those. If they lack a grout seal, that's a concern. In some cases, older wells, 30, 40 years old, may not have a good grout seal. Wells that lack a watertight casing or cap, that's the sanitary seal that we're talking about that Chad mentioned. Those without that or where over time that is degraded are also at risk. If a well has not been inspected by a certified well installer in the last five years, that always is of concern to me. Is it sufficient? Is it really still uh, safe? And obviously, any well that was submerged by floodwaters and surface waters are going to be of concern. Ultimately, what we're saying is if floodwaters even have come within 100 feet or less of your well, it's really a good idea to have the water tested as a precaution. Now, how to manage the drinking water wells after flooding? If there's reason to believe a private water supply well, the water quality has been compromised. Number one, don't use water for cooking, cleaning, drinking, brushing your teeth until after lab analysis is confirmed that it's safe. Also, if the well was potentially inundated, 
work with a licensed well contractor to inspect the well and clean out any debris or sediment that entered the well. Now, what are the options during and after the flooding to have water to consume? Obviously, using bottled water is a very good option. Or another option is to boil water, bring water to a vigorous rolling boil for at least one minute. This is what the Center for Disease Control and the US EPA each recommend. I know our group has done some literature review, digging back into some of the original literature, and one minute makes good sense. We don't recommend going for more than a minute because if you're evaporating a large amount of water, it's possible actually to concentrate other contaminants such as nitrate within the water. If the water from boiling doesn't taste well, we recommend pour the water between two containers to re-aerate it and maybe even add a pinch of salt. That may improve the taste. In some cases, individuals need a larger volume of water than getting bottled water or boiling can provide. They're using liquid bleach is a possibility to chlorinate and in a sense doing no different than many community water supplies do. So this is a case of using regular household bleach or sodium hypochlorite, the only active ingredient, adding about six drops per gallon, stirring it and letting it sit for 30 minutes. There should be a slight chlorine smell after 30 minutes that really point or that would confirm that you don't have old bleach, but bleach that has sufficient active ingredient. And we have a reference from the University of Nebraska through extension related to emergency treatment, for instance, with chlorine bleach. Testing, we encourage using a certified testing lab to test for bacteria. Um, any lab's gonna provide a test kit with detailed instructions. So you'll wanna obtain a sterile bottle from the water testing lab. Here in Nebraska, a number of our natural resource district offices and extension offices also have these bottles available to pick up to be able to use. I've also got a list here in Nebraska of the certified testing labs that one can work with. And also because there's been a big rush of samples from both community supplies and private uh, supplies, you know, domestic wells, we're seeing these labs are very busy and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has actually set up in the last few days in a, um, a mobile testing lab in Omaha to help kind of address the number of samples coming in. Let me see a little bit about testing for bacteria from a private well. Uh, for, you'll first of all find sometimes there may be a little bit of powder in the uh, sample bottle that's basically going to be part of the test. So leave that in there. Choose an inside faucet to collect the water sample, remove the aerator if there's one present, and turn on the cold water and run it for at least five minutes. The goal is to be sure you're pulling water from the well and not water that maybe was pulled from the well before the flooding and would not be representative of what's in the well. In a few cases, I know there's farmsteads that may have a very large pressure tank or may have a very complex, longer uh, set of pipes. In that case, one may need to use their judgment and run for longer than five minutes to get a representative sample from the well. As one takes a sample, be very careful on touching inside the bottle or the cap and remove the cap carefully from the container holding on the outside of the cap. 
among community water supply operators one common source for erroneous false positives for bacteria is actually just having the person collecting the samples touch inside the cap or touch inside the bottle. So be very careful about that. In addition, fill the container to the marked level. Often that's about 100 milliliters or three quarters of the bottle. And be sure the sample gets to the lab within 30 hours. And it would be good typically to try to keep the sample cool in a refrigerator or a cooler. Occasionally, individuals may be mailing the sample through the U.S. mail. In that case, try not to send it on a Thursday or Friday so the sample is kind of stuck in the mail over the weekend and heating up and kind of going past the desired time. We also have for testing NEB guides that kind of step through this information. And typically, the labs that you'd be working with are also going to give you instructions for collecting the bacterial sample. Now, what happens if your water sample tests positive? What we recommend is to shock chlorinate the well using, again, chlorine bleach to kill the bacteria. And before using the water, test a water sample and send it to one of the certified labs to confirm that you've really successfully disinfected the well and flush the well. Typically, as part of the shock chlorination, there's also a very major step of flushing the well. I'm not going to give detailed instructions on shock chlorination, merely because the amount of chlorine to add, the amount of kind of flushing will really vary depending upon things like the depth of the well, the diameter of the well, the volume of water. But we have a guide related to shock chlorination. I know many other extension services and other agencies also have guides on shock chlorination and the flushing that's needed to clean out a domestic well. I'll finish just with giving some guidance on where to find more information. First of all, uh, at UNL, we've put together a flood webpage related to, among other things, water quality to help give guidance. And if anyone's interested, we also at the University of Nebraska have an extension page related to drinking water that has information not only on testing, but also on different contaminants, nitrate, bacteria, how to understand if one does have a test come back that's positive, to understand a little more about the contaminant. We have a series on different domestic treatment systems, reverse osmosis, ion exchange, distillation, and we also have a series on managing one's own domestic well and encourage individuals to utilize those. My email is there as there are questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dvorak, for a wonderful presentation on this. And there's a lot of um, useful resources. If you look in our materials section, um, you'll find a lot of the um, information he he was talking about in the material section. So that's right on your dialog box. Next, we're going to go ahead and, and um, move to our next presenter, Dr. Aaron Yoder. He's an associate professor in environmental, agricultural, and occupational health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and Nebraska Extension. He's also with the Biological Systems Engineering at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. So thank you, Dr. Yoder. We're going to go ahead and turn it over to you. All right. Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you're coming in clear. 
All right, great. Um, so I appreciate that, Bruce. I, um, it's always good to see other people at Nebraska and the other resources. I have to admit early on that I utilize the Nebraska Extension resources a lot in many of my work. Um, I'm based out of the medical center here in Omaha, um, but I also have a partial appointment in the biological systems engineering where I do agricultural safety and health work, mainly tractor safety and agribility work. Um, but interacting with all our colleagues and all our networking is very helpful. Um, so my presentation today is looking at it from my background, which is the safety side of things. I have some health stuff in here, a little bit of reiteration of what some people have already talked about, um, but I'll, I'll skip uh, quickly through some of the parts. I apologize for not having pictures, but as Natalie said, this was a pretty quick response. So hopefully in future events, I'll have more images to share with you. Um, the first thing I wanted to mention is um, personal safety. Again, I said my background was in safety and health, and um, when we, whether we're talking about emergency responses to agricult other agricultural events or these type of events, we want to make sure we keep ourselves healthy and safe. Um, that if we injure ourselves, we're not going to be very helpful for the rest of the process. Um, and a lot of the health information we talked about did that. Um, but I also want to talk about the safety side. Um, so for the first part, you know, being patient, not returning into a, a flooded site until you're safe to return. We'll talk about some of the hazards uh, that are that are possible there as we go into this. So thinking safety, taking precautions not only for ourselves but our family and other people, volunteers that are helping us. We've heard two great talks about water contamination. Um, so we sh should consider all water we're coming in contact with as contaminated as either gray or black water. Um, and if you don't know those terms, I encourage you to go look them up, <laughs> but mainly meaning contaminated water that oftentimes will have fecal material in it. Um, restricted entry. Um, we shouldn't be bringing our kids, pets, vulnerable people back into these environments. I know some people would like to help or utilize some of this help, uh, but oftentimes those, especially children and older adults, are vulnerable to infections and the impact of those infections. So uh, making sure that we have able-bodied, uh, healthy people helping work in the cleanup efforts. Uh, we heard lots of talk about wearing our protective clothing. Uh, something I didn't hear yet that I'd like to mention is to make sure you take clean water with you and stay hydrated. Um, it's easy to become dehydrated when you're working hard and not thinking about that. Um, we've heard a little bit about protecting our lungs, and I know we'll hear more about that, uh, but just all the things that could be um, in the air that we're working with. And again, just like with the well water, we don't really know what's in it, um, so we need to protect ourselves for the worst case scenarios. And then finally, with our personal safety, looking at avoiding the physical strain on us, there's lots of back injuries and other injuries like that, um, slips and falls we'll hear about. Um, thinking about that. We don't know what's under the flood water. I saw a picture the other day of the, one of the streets in Omaha that was covered in flood water and it was all buckled and broken into chunks. And if you drive through that, assuming that the, that the road was still there, you'd be in for a big surprise. The same thing can happen in farmyards and around homes. Sinkholes can open up uh, that you don't realize maybe it never used to be there and some of those types of hazards. And then we talk about this being a winter flood, but some of the cold, the water is very cold. 
so we can deal with situations like hypothermia. Um, so just making sure we take care of ourselves as we go into these sites and deal with some of these other hazards we'll be talking about. So some of the, the potential ha hazards when we look at homes or other agricultural structures, um, we know that most of them have the utilities of either gas, water, and electricity. Electricity probably being one of the biggest ones that we first think about. Uh, water and electricity aren't don't mix very well, so making sure all that is disconnected. Um, and then when we think about beyond the utilities, things like debris, lots of debris has moved around. I mentioned road conditions or holes. Uh, buildings and structures could be unstable because of that. Again, we don't want to incur any additional injuries. The slips and falls, and then we've uh, the floodwaters have displaced a lot of animals, rodents, snakes, and other uh, animals that could potentially harm us. So thinking about that, um, what structural damage is out there? If we think a structure is unsafe to go into, uh, we should avoid that area until it can be inspected a little bit further. Um, Heard a lot, I live in a community of Plattsmouth just south of the Platte River and half of my community has flooded basements or a lot of them do. And there's concerns with pumping out basements when the water is, when the soil is still saturated, uh, that the basements will actually crush in. Um, so making sure that you are using the right processes and procedures uh, for pumping water out of spaces that might have waterlogged ground on the outside of it. Um, Supplemental power, we know lots of people are using generators and there's a lot of warnings out there from the CDC and others about avoiding the fumes from those as well as electrical shock from our supplemental power sources. So again, dealing with water and electricity and need to have our supplemental power sources in uh, well-ventilated places. I know a lot of agricultural operations have PTO-driven generators. Um, so for running tractors, um, have the PTO shafts that are uh, a traditional hazard in agriculture, turning those generators uh, along with the, the wet and slippery conditions around them, uh, we can have some hazardous situations there. Um, if we do have a, a barn or a facility, even a home that has heating and cooling equipment that was submerged, making sure we have that inspected by professionals before we fire that back up, thinking that we might be able to dry out the environment, but could cause more issues if we use equipment before it's been properly inspected. And then um, as we're going through all of this, I know one of the stressors we'll think about later will be also the, uh, um, the cost of these and some of the recuperation of that. So making sure as we're cleaning things up that we document and report these losses uh, or have a way to report them to our insurance, farm service agency and those sorts. So getting to some specifics of the agricultural side, um, there's lots of different uh, aspects of that. Thinking about livestock is one of the first ones. We've seen massive amounts of livestock being affected by this. Um, and we know they're gonna act similar to, to us being uh, all pumped full of adrenaline, possibly panicked, confused, not sure what's going on. Um, so that makes handling uh, the animals a little more challenging than normal. Some of our regular facilities are no longer there, the fences, uh, the stockades and that sort of thing, even the barn structures. Um, so they're gonna be very much more difficult to, uh, to handle. Um, we wanna make sure that when we are handling them, we think of people first, again, not injuring ourselves. Then they talk about saving our pets and I could go either way with pets or livestock. <laughs> um, 
but uh, making sure then work on the livestock and then the property. So that's sort of the, the recommended sequence when we think about safety and evacuation or um, rounding up animals. Um, we really need to look at safety of ourselves first and then of the animals. Uh, we want to try to make the surrounding as familiar as possible to the livestock. Again, trying to keep that adrenaline level down and the panic and confusion down. Um, and then our main goal is just to get the, sort of the scene stabilized, get them to a safe place um, that we're not going to have to be in contact with them. And um, part of that includes feeding them again. Uh, we're all happier when we eat, right? Um, the next topic, just to, to hit briefly, is machinery safety. We know people are going to be using machinery in many different ways than they typically use it. They're going to be helping others with them. And normally, um, we see a rise in machinery incidents when people are doing unplanned tasks. If it's a typical task that you've done a lot of times, oftentimes that's a little bit safer when we're using the machinery uh, for things that we may not have planned or overloading the machinery. Uh, having more people around it. We see the same basic safety um, considerations that we've had before, tractor rollovers when we're trying to pull stuff out of the mud, uh, running people over because they're not usually around the machinery or there's more people around the machinery. And as I mentioned with the portable generators, people getting caught in the equipment. So thinking about those, again, uh, protecting ourselves first, um, and even before we get to the operation of the machinery, the first line there, making sure that the machinery isn't damaged before we try to use it, uh, because that can lead to, again, some more unplanned events that could lead to injury. And then when we are using the machinery, whether it's in floodwaters, uh, not knowing what's under the water, um, we know that along the edges of rivers and streams and ponds and even slopes are going to be very unstable. Um, which could lead to additional events. So this applies to even using our motor vehicles in these ways. Um, when it comes to chemicals, we talked already a little bit about what the floodwaters could be contaminated with. Um, we know that in agriculture, we store other chemicals, uh, pesticides, fertilizers, and, and so forth. Um, if we know that there's a specific chemical spill, uh, we should report that. The little side panel here gives us uh, some of the, the methods to follow for that. It, at a minimum, we should contact 911 and tell them about the spill. Uh, but we want to remember the three C's when we get to that. We want to control the spill, contain or control uh, the, any sort of injury that could be happening, contain the spill, and then work on cleaning it up however we can. Uh, but there's lots of information in the panel on the side here as far as how to do that. And the emergency responders can help us th with that as well. I know Linda mentioned fuel tanks um, or gas cans floating around and that sort of thing, which can lead to explosion hazards when it comes to the chemicals. Um, I know Chad mentioned some stuff about uh, what potentially chemicals could be in the water. Um, so all of this stuff we need to, to keep in mind as well. And then I wanted to hit on um, as, a, as a final thing when we look at this is grain. And we know this is going to be a, a huge stressor for our grain farmers. Um, we had the livestock stressors earlier on, but looking at the grain handling and grain stressors that we have up there, uh, we need to assume that any grain that has touched flood water is contaminated uh, because we don't know what's in the water. Um, so these grains need to be destroyed. We don't want them to make it into either cattle feed or human feed strains. 
um, and I'm sure the cooperatives and the, the collection areas uh, will be testing these for that, but we want to try to prevent from overburdening those systems. Um, and we do know from some research that when we store grain and it's flooded, the moisture really doesn't travel too far up into the grain, um, maybe more than a foot. So the grain that's above the flood line would still be usable, but we can't take it out of the bin in the normal process or we'd be passing it through the contaminated. Um, so we'll have to have different methods of removing uh, that grain. So having people that uh, have done this in the past or things like grain vacuums, we can suck off the top then we won't have to uh, risk contamination of the, the grain that may still potentially be good at the top of it. We want to make sure that we don't start any of the components. Again, we have those electrical hazards to talk about in the stored grain, but we want to make sure we're not aerating the bins. We think maybe we can dry it out, but in that case, we may just be sending contaminants through the bin um, or risking harm to somebody that's touching the components when it's energized. Um, so we want to have all of that again inspected and make sure that it's all good structurally, which we'll get to in a minute, as well as from the electrical side. Um, there are companies out there that do um, salvage operations that can help with that. Uh, we know when we talk about personal protection, things like other toxins that could be in that grain. Um, and we know that the grain that was wet will be molded um, even by the time the water is receded out of it. Like Chad did mention, having cooler weather will help with slowing that process, but that process is still going to occur. I just put something. So beyond the um, sort of the, the, the grain itself, thinking about the structures, we know that when things get wet, um, they're going to swell. Um, the swelling of the corn and the swelling of the soybeans, um, soybeans tend to swell more than corn, they're going to damage those structures, um, which can end up shearing off bolts or elongating holes. So once we do get um, the grain out of there, we need to look at this stuff. But even before we get to the grain, making sure those structures are stable before we start climbing in and on and working around them. Um, so we want to make sure we uh, look for so those signs of failure. Um, we also know that the foundations can be deformed from it, whether they shifted or floated um, so or deteriorated in some way. So making sure, again, uh, that the grain bin's not going to collapse when we start working around it. Um, so we want to make sure we have those uh, inspected and potentially even engineering evaluations of those, especially the larger bins that we're seeing these days on um, agricultural operations. So inspecting all the parts, the electrical wiring, not energizing the wet components, all of these are going to ensure our safety as well as those working with us. Um, once we do get it all um, cleaned out, we want to make sure now we have to disinfect those fac uh, facilities. So whether it's grain storage or feed storage or those type of areas that are going to now potentially have molds and other contaminants in them from that black or gray water. So sort of a, a quick action list um, that we that um, has been presented to us, taking looking at getting rid of that power to all structures before we start doing anything. Uh, if there's water lines or other type of uh, where the where the good grain and bad grain um, are separated, looking at the you know what our insurance carrier recommends before we start doing that. Again, we know the financial risks and the financial uh, part of this is going to lead to 
much stress later on, if not the stress that we've already seen and Linda has mentioned. Um, we want to have that good grain removed. There's some great materials out there. The Nebraska Department of Agriculture has some on what to, how to dispose of the damaged grain and hay. Uh, we want to disinfect those and then make sure we, uh, before we feed any of what we consider the good grain, uh, to have that evaluated before we start using it. And then finally, with the, the grain salvage, there may be some salvage available out of some of it if it has been tested. Uh, we need to make sure if we're reconditioning grain that it's done with the consent of the FDA. And then um, there are some different alternatives you have to deal with that, drying the grain, feeding it, um, or turning it into silage because of the high moisture content, which can be done in bunkers and bags. So there's a few resources I'm slowly going to uh, page through here at the end of my presentation so they're on the video and people can see them some of them have been mentioned before i worked like i said uh and was bruce talked about the flood web page from unl extension is great um, the eden network is another one that i saw come up in some places the extension uh disaster education network is another good one um, and then the uh, extension.org or e-extension has a whole flood page uh, the uh, UNL extension has some great materials on flooded homes as well, and these apply. And some of the, the principles I talked about today came from these resources. Um, same thing with pesticide storage. The University of Wisconsin has a great sheet that's put up on uh, the National Ag Safety Database. Um, Colorado State University through Eden has some great information on handling livestock in the events of flooding. Uh, both during and post-flood. And then the resources on um, the flooded grain. UNL Crop Watch just put out an article yesterday uh, that some of this information came from, from some of our uh, colleagues in Iowa. Uh, there's other in uh, eExtension or extension.org again on managing that flooded grain bins. And then uh, the disposal sheet from the uh, Nebraska Department of Agriculture in dealing with disposing of damaged grain and hay. And that's all I have for my presentation. So I welcome questions and comments uh, as we go through this. I do wanna mention my support as well from the Central State Center for Ag Safety and Health and uh, the, all the collaborators I have. Thank you, Dr. Yoder, for that wealth of information. and. Um, we certainly have the ability to also reach out to the participants with additional resources that aren't listed on the materials section. We really appreciate that. Um, next up is uh, Dr. Tina Chazek, and she's the Associate Professor, the Department of Counseling and School Psychology at the University of Nebraska in Kearney. And uh, thank you, Dr. Chazek, for joining us on a very important issue of, of mental health as we relate to the flooding episode. You bet. Thanks so much, Natalie. So uh, my presentation will just be a little bit different than the ones that you've heard that have been really excellent. Um, I, I've learned a lot as I've listened. Um, and so my role here is um, on kind of the behavioral health side or the emotional impact. Um, Linda started off her uh, our webinar here talking a little bit about how she's seen people go through a variety of stages as this crisis has uh, been unfolding. Um, for, for those of us in Nebraska and Iowa. And so um, I'm gonna take a look at what behavioral health um, things may be occurring 
And then just some ways that people can cope with this is they can go on and do all the things that need to be done to recover. And so um, I work as a, a mental health professional in Nebraska. I'm also a professor and um, work with the Behavioral Health Education Center of Nebraska just to get services out to the rural communities, which are often lacking. And so um, when we take a look at what has been going on um, in our area here with the, the flooding, um, there's been a couple things that have jumped out at me as I've seen the images. And I'm trying here to get my slides to go forward and they're not for some reason. Um, so, oh, there we go. All right, so this, um, you know, as we've been flooded uh, here in Nebraska with images of, of what this uh, flooding has done to our neighbors and our family and friends, some things have really stuck out and, and it's almost overwhelming. Um, and I, I pulled a few pictures here. This one really caught my eye because this is a family, a five generation farm family. Um, and they, you know, they were flooded the ice jam uh, when the Spencer Dam broke up in northern Nebraska, it really just pretty much destroyed their whole operation. And the thing about this family is, you know, this is the fifth generation of farmers on this land. Um, the, the gentleman there in the picture, um, he doesn't have children. He's devoted his whole life to the farm and, you know, everything is gone. And so you think about the grief and the loss that some people are feeling um, as they, they're going through this tragedy. And I, it's just a real human toll um, that, you know, has really touched me. And I, there are a lot of pictures of other things that I, I chose not to put up here because they're pretty disturbing. You know, when the flood swept through and, and livestock were lost and, and, and gone, and, you know, there's there are people's um, animals and livestock that are just, uh, that are gone, you know, that have floated away, and, and those images are very disturbing to see. And so some of the natural uh, disaster uh, reactions that happen that are very common, um, disbelief and shock, fear and anxiety about the future. <clears throat> there is kind of this very initial stage of almost being numb and a disbelief that this is happening. Um, people can start feeling uh, kind of, as Linda said, kind of getting into that irritable or angry stage, feeling sad and depressed. And the huge thing is feeling very powerless. Um, natural disasters really show us that, you know, we don't have a lot of control over things that, that we um, sometimes think that we do. And so this feeling of being powerless can, can sometimes lead to a very hopeless place. Um, there can be uh, crying <clears throat> for no apparent reason in quotations because there is reason, but it feels like it comes out of nowhere as you're trying to recover and do the things you need to do to get back on your feet. Um, headaches, back pain, stomach issues. We can have some physical manifestations of our emotional um, difficulties. You know, and not only, you know, as you look at that, I'm sure there's lots of back pain and headaches just from the hard physical labor that's going to have to happen um, going forward. And so as you physically are exhausted and hurting, um, that also takes a huge toll on your emotional well-being as well. Those two things are very much linked and connected. Um, <clears throat> the nightmares, difficulty sleeping, especially if you've had seen things that are very disturbing as you've went, gone through these uh, natural disasters. You know, that can become a real issue as um, it, you then are exhausted from working, having difficulty sleeping, and you're not getting good sleep. Um, the, one, the last thing there on the list, increased use of substances. Many people tend to cope um, with some of these issues by increasing the use of a substance to relax or to, you know, just to get through, and then that creates its own set of issues. 
And so when I talk about behavioral health, I just wanted to be really clear about what that is. So when we talk about behavioral health, it's really our sense of well-being, our emotional well-being, our ability to function in day-to-day life, our concept of ourself, our resiliency, and it also does include substance use disorders. So, you know, those things are all packaged together when we talk about behavioral health. And those that are in the agriculture um, uh, industry and rural um, ways of, of making a living, there's also several other things um, that tend to uh, be risk factors for people with their behavioral health um, in terms of uh, uniqueness to agriculture. And so when we have this natural disaster, it just piles up on top of an already sometimes vulnerable uh, population. And what I mean by that are people in agriculture face some unique um, uh, risk factors <clears throat> for behavioral health uh, concerns. You know, things like um, being exposed to some chemicals that can lead to changes uh, in brain structure and lead to depression, um, a lot of stress, a lot of worry, and like I said, lack of control, uh, poor health, um, typically Farmers and ag workers are very hardworking and sometimes don't take very good care of themselves or go to the doctor as much as they should. Um, another kind of common factor, risk factor, is just lack of access to services. Um, there's, you know, tends to be a, a shortage of behavioral health providers in our rural communities, and so there's not always places to go. Um, there's a huge financial um, risk factor, and this is only going to be compounded as we go forward in this disaster and any disaster when we realize the financial toll that this is going to take on people and their way of living. <clears throat> and so um, there's many things I guess we, we want to be aware of um, as we're moving forward and recovering from uh, the, the, the flooding effects. And the, you see here on the screen this picture of this farmer feeding his cattle, you know, in, um, in, in water, doing everything he can to make sure his livestock is taken care of. And um, the, the immediate, you know, people are just taking care of what needs to be taken care of right now. And so there's many stages or waves of disaster effects that happen um, for people's mental health and wellness. And so right now, um, I would say that we're in what is called the heroic stage or phase. And that's where there's a high level of activity. Um, people are really putting into motion, you know, getting things done. Many people are coming into the states and helping with things. You know, there's been air, airdrops of hay that have happened in the National Guard. And, you know, that that's really amazing. And it's it's very, um, uh, it awe, awe, awe awesome, I guess, to see. And so that's what we would call the heroic phase where people are feeling like, you know, we can tackle this. And that leads to the honeymoon phase where there's lots of optimism that we're going to recover. And in our state, we're seeing lots of things like Nebraska strong and, you know, together we're going to get through this and just really some great things that are happening um, that help people kind of go on day to day and do what they need to do. Um, that these stages um, last for only really a few weeks or maybe months, a couple months, and then we start to go into what's called the disillusionment phase. And that phase is where that optimism starts slowly waning as the grind of trying to recover from this just keeps going on and on, and maybe we're not sleeping as well, and, and we're getting tired and exhausted and not seeing the progress that we had hoped. And so this is where, as mental health professionals, we get really concerned. And so for 
for um, me, all of this stuff that's happening now is great, but where the real um, work is going to come and where the real concern is going to happen is about maybe three to six months, you know, going on for probably um, a, a year or two after. And that's, you know, we have, um, that's when the, the, the effects, the full effects are seen of what people are going through. And so um, this is, again, when substance use can really increase, where we see lots of stress, lots of depression. Um, this is when we get most concerned about people, um, suicidal um, kind of uh, concerns because people feel stuck for such a long time. Um, and so that any, any um, things can start becoming triggers for other stress. So if you, you know, you're dealing with this, but then maybe also you have a health event in your family or some other issues come up, it just triggers that and compounds the, some of these other things. And so what we hope to get to, obviously, for everyone is the reconstruction phase, which is where we're in, recover we're in recovery from the event and we feel like we're back on our feet and have some hope again. And so, you know, there are many things that folks can do um, to keep themselves uh, well, and that's what we want. We don't want to get to that disillusionment phase um, where we're feeling hopeless and feeling like choices are gone. And so tips for coping. Um, what is really important is to talk about it and communicate your experience. So, you know, talking to family and friends and uh, others in your community that you're close to and communicate what you're experiencing, how maybe hard this is and how stressful it is. Do something to feel in control. So whatever you can do, you know, to take control of your situation, um, to do that and to focus on that, that, you know, this is what I got done today and this is what I can control and let go of some of those things you can't control. Spending time with family and friends and social support is really key. We're um, kind of all in this together and that helps bolster each other in your emotional and mental reserves. Take care of yourself, sleep, eat, exercise. You know, I heard Linda say, too, that people are getting really tired because they're up all night watching, um, you know, uh, the, the other things that need to happen and making sure community's safe. So we have to take time, though, to take care of ourselves. We will, um, will not be good to anybody if we're not well. And so um, it's the old uh, adage of, of putting your oxygen mask on before you can help others. Um, limiting exposure to images of the disaster, there is a point where you get saturated and need to kind of back off of those things, um, just so you're not repeatedly exposing yourself to very stressful and upsetting things. Um, taking a thing at a time and doing something positive. That um, I read an, an, an article about a family in, in the Sand Hills, and, and they, you know, had very little time uh, as the waters rise to get their livestock taken care of and other things. And, in the article, the the uh, gentleman mentioned that there was not going to be any fun had for at least a year into next summer, and that that concerned me because um, we need that we need downtime and we need to do things that bring us back some sense of joy, and so even if it is hard to make times to go do things that are positive and that you enjoy doing, um, of course avoiding drugs, excessive drinking, um, and not to make major life decisions until the major impact has passed. Sometimes that's hard because I know decisions need to be made. And when that does, to make sure you get lots of good input. Because sometimes when we make decisions when we're not at our best thinking ability, they end up being not very good decisions. And then the last thing is to ask for help when needed. And that is so important um, that, you know, if those strong feelings won't go away um, after, you know, four to six weeks, if you're feeling uh, extremely stressed, depressed, uh, 
you know, just wore out and kind of worried, or if you're worried about somebody in that capacity, maybe they've made some statements that concern you about things not being worth it anymore, um, make sure that you ask, get some help. And, um, you know, for yourself, ask for help, or maybe you need to be the voice to speak up for others and ask them to, to get some help or to go with you to make sure that they're okay. Um, many mental health providers um, obviously can help with this issue if they're in your community. If not, reach out to a clergy person, a pastor, a minister. There are very good resources to connect you to places where you can get help. And also physicians, um, nurses, medical professionals in the community are also good places of support. And, you know, I really, this image on the computer here, uh, I really love that, you know, we're out there, everybody's helping each other out, trying to help the livestock, and just get them to a place of safety. We need to remember that for ourselves and our fellow human beings, that we need to get people also to places of where they feel safe and comfortable. And so a few resources here. Um, Nebraska has a rural response hotline that's really good. They're uh, very in tune to the agricultural needs and the special um, things that go along with that. They can help with a multitude of things from behavioral health to um, legal issues to all other kinds of uh, social issues. Um, and then a couple of national hotlines there for people who might need help. And I will just say as well that uh, my contact information is there if there's anything I can do to help um, and, you know, help us recover um, from this and really to be stronger for it. Uh, I'd be glad to do that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Chazek. And I know that there was just so much information to uh, cover. You did an excellent job. And, and certainly we wanted to end with this topic on the behavioral health because we knew that um, there's, there are people that are going to be uh, needing assistance, and um, we do have some time for questions. Um, we have gone a little bit over our time, but that is to nobody's fault. There's just a lot of material to cover. Um, so we're going to go ahead and look at the chat box and see what we have. In the meantime, I'm going to just um, show you real quick on the material section. We do have a guidance that I want to make sure you bring your attention to, and that is the, um, the piece from the, uh, the CDC and USDA and make sure I'm presenting here. Um, it's on the interim guidance for protecting workers from livestock and, and poultry wastewater and sludge. Now this was, this was actually done. Um, yeah, thank you for making me the presenter there, Stacey. This was actually done last um, summer in response to the flooding in the Carolinas and because there was a lot of uh, livestock operations. And so I really recommend that uh, everybody take some time to read it. It's, it's well written, it's well uh, developed. And um, it's, it's got some technical pieces, but I think it's an important overview, um, and it is something that the CDC has, has developed. So please access that along with the other materials that we provided for you. I'm going to go back to the chat box and see if there's any other questions. Um, there was, let's go back to the top here. Um, we want to make sure, there's a question about um, having more information about uh, saturated basements and ground pressures. I think there's some concern about, you know, when... When is it okay to re-enter a flooded area? And so I don't know if any of the presenters would like to um, to address that issues related to uh, more information on saturated basements and ground pressures. Um, it, the other, the same person also asked the question about um, if there's an optimized time to enter and assess a flooded area. Natalie, this is Aaron, and uh, maybe. Uh... David can help us more from the civil engineering side of things, but 
Um, I know members of my community have been relying on the local authorities when it comes to when you can enter back into places. Um, they need to make sure that the scene is clear. Um, I know the state police has, have said they've been spending an extra amount of time keeping people away from places they shouldn't be, um, that people aren't very good at listening to that. Um, so your local authorities can tell you a lot about that. And then the same with the, the basement structure. I'm not an expert in that, um, but realizing that that is an issue and then seeking guidance. I know home builders know a lot about that. Um, so if you have a builder, if you have a homeowners association, they would be able to help you with that. But in more rural areas, I think that's a place where maybe our extension service might be able to help us a little bit uh, in doing that. So I don't have a definite answer. I know the CDC and Googling some stuff about that earlier. There's some other resources out there. I just didn't list any of those, uh, but we can search those out and send them to you for you to uh, include on your resource page. Yes, I'm happy to do that. And just as a, a side note, all the I know you've had a lot of different resources shared with you today. Those of you attending, what we'll do is we'll send up a follow-up email to you with um with these with this list as well. Because of the materials section, we have about six resources, but there is additional information, so you can plan on getting that. I have a question for um, Dr. Devork. Uh, in terms of you know the areas that haven't flooded yet, but they anticipate flooding. Um, I, I noticed in your presentation you talked about preparing the wellhead. Um, can you speak a little bit about that in terms of do you envision that if, if is that a guidance right now for folks that are have well water and they know that the potential for flooding that they they act now to prepare that wellhead to protect it and, and is there um, is there success with that in terms of preventive uh, protection? And I know you're muted right now, so I don't know if you have the um, if you're trying to speak, but if you have the ability to unmute your your mic. I'm not sure if Dr. Dvorak is um, able to still join us because it looks like he might have got bumped offline. But um, I don't know if any of the other presenters have the ability to respond to that in terms of. Is you know is there a recommendation that before flooded waters come your way that there is uh, there is work to be done to check it check the wellhead? I'm going to go ahead and um, unmute Ellen. I'm going to unmute you as well because I know you've done work in this area. So yep, you're unmuted anyways. This is Aaron again, and I, I know there are guidelines out there. I know in our community, they started to sandbag around them when the floodwaters were coming uh, to prevent that building up berms. Most of them, and I know most of the guidelines show you, uh, you want the surface waters to be sloped away from them. Uh, but when floodwaters come, the best that I've seen them doing, they were digging trenches around them. They were sandbagging around them, as well as uh, building other earthen dams around them to try to prevent that uh, surface water from getting in the wells. Thank you, Aaron. It looks like um, uh, Bruce Dvorak is, is uh, trying to join us uh, again here. It looks like there might be some difficulty with the access, but um, certainly we can um, hold on. I unmuted you, so if you have the ability to um, 
There you go. Looks like you're on mute. Thank you. Oh, you're on mute Thank you. Sorry, I had a problem with my web web connection. No problem. So the question was, I my question was, and Aaron addressed it a little bit. Um, I noticed in your slides you talked about preparing the well and, and coming um, before flood waters come. And I know that there's a lot of states that are predicting uh, floods, and you know certainly we're not out of the woods yet. So is there any um, you find that there's success in getting this work done ahead of time, and is it something that farmers can do on their own, or do you feel they need to bring, um, if, if there's anticipation that there's going to be floods happening on that farm, do they have to bring an expert to do that, or is that something they can do themselves? I think this is something there's quite a bit they can do themselves. Obviously, as kind of Aaron mentioned, kind of assessing their own situation, determining, you know, do they need to do something related to their well itself? sandbagging as well as just preparing themselves for the situation after the flood how are they going to have safe water if their well does become inundated preparing themselves to do some sampling so really there's a wide range of resources individuals can go to to try to assess their own well you kind of look at their vulnerability as well as just prepare for what i hate to say is the worst and I may mention if it's an older well, one thing I would really encourage them to do if they have not had their well inspected by a certified well installer in the last several years, say the last five years, they really should try to do that. That also will just do a tremendous amount to help them. Thank you, that's excellent advice. And, and the preparation piece too also makes us think about the personal protective equipment. I know Linda, you talked about how difficult it is to actually access the equipment that you need. Um, you know, you don't have a Home Depot down the road. So those areas that um, they're anticipating flooding in the future, certainly um, uh, getting that personal protective equipment in, in, in that house ahead of time is important. Um, I really appreciate everybody's time today. I don't see any questions come through uh, at this point, any more questions, but for those folks that are Presenters, um, feel free if you have anything you want to add before we close the session, we'll go ahead and um, allow you to do that now. This is Bruce. I just may mention one thing that in some cases, a community may announce their public or community drinking water is safe. Even if that happens, we need to be sure those on domestic wells realize that really has no relevance to their specific well. Excellent guidance, thank you. Thank you everybody, I know you've hung on for a while here. Um, and just as a reminder, this webinar has been recorded and so it will be available on our website probably in about an hour or so. So for those folks who have missed it, they can certainly access it on their own time. And please reach out to any one of us um, if you have any questions or need assistance. And again, thank you presenters for coming on such short notice, really appreciate all the work you've done. Um, everybody have a, have a good day, stay safe, and we'll be um, thinking and praying. Thanks for listening, podcast. If you have any questions on the resources that were mentioned here or if there's something you can't find, certainly feel free to reach out to myself. That's A-G-R-O-N-G-U-Y at gmail.com. I should be able to steer you in the right direction. Also, like I said at the beginning, be sure to check out the AgriSafe Network Learning Labs. 
There's lots of great information on there that can hopefully help you as you move forward. And again, we're hoping and praying that you won't have to deal with some of these major flooding issues, but we think it's incredibly important. Be sure to share this with anybody that you think uh, may be affected by, by floods moving forward. And we will catch you next time on the Eggview Pitch.